Waking Up, Pronouns for God, and Abiogenesis. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Listen, we're getting together in Denver and Chicago, me, Michael Gunger, Lisa Gunger, for something called the Liturgist Gathering. We'd love for you to join us. Uh, tickets are going really fast. If you'd like more information, check out theliturgist.com. But for now, hey, we've got a podcast to do, so let's get it started. Hey, Mike, thanks for all you do. I and the group of college students that I pastor have been deeply impacted by your work. So look, I've got a couple questions related to energy. One more scientific, one a little bit more theological. Um, So I, I know, though I don't understand, that the law of conservation of energy implies that energy is infinite, um, and, and, you know, I've seen the Minute Physics video about the singularity where he mentions that the Big Bang may be one of many in an infinitely repeating cycle of expansion and compression. And uh, this boggles my mind, of, of course. Um, and, and so I'm curious, like, how does that work? But, but I also am curious on the theological side of this. You see, I, I don't generally have a problem living with the paradoxes created by a, a simultaneous commitment to empiricism and spirituality. However... The part of the Christ narrative to which I cling most closely is the idea of universal reconciliation, that all that goes out from the divine returns to it. But what if the divine has always been and always will be sending out? I mean, if energy is infinite, what does that do to the resurrected Christ being Alpha and Omega if if neither of those truly exist? Or, you know, is this just another example of of dualistic thinking run amok? Uh, Thanks, Mike. I look forward to your answer. Well, let's start with the easy part of that question, which is about the law of conservation of energy, which is basically the idea that within a closed system, energy can't be created or destroyed, and it is fundamental to the laws of physics as we understand them. It's foundational uh, for all sciences, absolutely essential. It's important to understand, though, in a closed system. So, for example, the Earth is not a closed system. It gets energy from the sun. It releases energy into space. So there's nothing closed about the Earth. That's why, for example, we talk about entropy increases, which is another law of physics, uh, the second law of thermodynamics. And, well, people say then evolution is not possible because you have this, you know, increase in order, and that's because the Earth is not a closed system. So, yes, The law of conservation of energy is a real law with extraordinary support for it. Now, what does that mean for God? Um, let's, Let's be very clear for a moment. Right now, when we talk about the singularity or the cosmic inflation, the, the period of time when the universe expanded very rapidly after the singularity, our confidence goes down significantly in those claims. What our equations tell us is not necessarily that singularity is an inscrutable mystery, but merely that the laws we have don't describe reality accurately enough to make predictions about that kind of state. So there's all kinds of 
ideas and hypotheses uh, floating around in the sciences about where the universe came from and what the ultimate fate of the universe will be. And those are open questions in the sciences. They are not resolved. So there are many scientists who believe it's likely or probable that the universe exists in this state of compression and expansion, a cycle that continues. Well, let's think about the theological implications. I believe that most of the time when we find ourselves confused about God, it's because we're taking God and we're putting God into a human reference frame. We're taking an anthropomorphic view of the divine. So a beginning and an end in a cycle seems to undermine the idea of an alpha and omega. And first, I would say I don't make fact claims using my faith. I don't use theology to make predictions about the universe. Uh, So you're kind of venturing into an area of theology I don't really go to. Uh, But if I did, I would look at it this way. A perception of linear time like we experience in causality is a localized reference frame. It's not a holistic view of the universe. I've said it on the podcast before relativity seems to indicate because of the the relative alignment of reference frames based on the variable passage of time in a localized reference frame, the only constant being the speed of light, that all coordinates of space-time always exist. So if there's a beginning and an end, even if they're cyclical, they always exist from a more holistic view of the entire space-time fabric, construct, whatever it is. Now, here's the thing about trying to make great theological alignments or predictions on physics. We have no idea which model of cosmic origins is going to gain experimental support first. There's different multiverse models. There are some models that don't require a multiverse at all. It may be that none of the theories we have today pan out into capital T theories, with a large body of work that supports their validity. I think the lesson for us is that it's exciting and, in fact, awe-inspiring to consider our cosmological origins and how that may relate to what we call God. But it's also important to note that God is not like us. (laughs) God is not bound in space and time in any reasonable definition of the word God. I don't speak of God as a being. I speak of God as the ground of being. You know, I'm more comfortable with pantheism than traditional theism. We tend to try to box God in to the universe as we understand it. And if science makes anything clear, it's that our perspective in relation to the cosmos is, you know, more limited than the perspective of an ant to Manhattan or a bacterium to my neighborhood. (laughs) We are experiencing things based on the particular scale that we function. In ultimate reality, as we understand it, both cosmological and quantum does nothing to serve our intuition. And so I think we have a responsibility in our theology to acknowledge the great mystery of reality. So my primary response to God is not one of trying to understand or master, but to love and to show gratitude toward that which we call God. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hey, Science Mike, 
I have a question about sleep. However, the question isn't really about sleep, but rather it's about waking up. It seems as if many people justifiably place a lot of emphasis on the importance of creating environments for ourselves to ensure that we rest well, but seem to neglect or fail to mention very much about the end of that process. So I want to know what the science is behind waking up. Scientifically, are there more beneficial or less beneficial ways to wake up in order to get the most out of the first hour or two of my day? Why does it seem like waking up is infinitely more difficult than actually falling asleep? Or am I alone in this? Signed, Groggy Bobby. (laughs) Well, Bobby, uh, first of all, difficulty of waking up versus sleeping is going to vary by individual and their circumstances. Some people have incredible difficulty falling asleep, some to the point of suffering insomnia. Uh, other people find the transition to sleepfulness more difficult than the transition to wakefulness. I'm going to make um, a conjecture that for a majority of people, falling asleep is easier than waking up, and I'm not basing that on claim, uh, any, any data. That's an intuitive judgment call. So uh, somebody find some data to that point. I'd love to hear it. I'll see you on Twitter or my Facebook page. One thing about your question that I have to address is that science is absolutely clear that you cannot view falling asleep, sleeping well, and waking up in isolation because they are all part of a cycle, a feedback loop that influences itself. And one of the reasons waking up is so difficult for most people is that we as a civilization are chronically sleep-deprived. Even though science is really clear most people need at least seven, preferably eight hours a night of sleep, most people feel good if they get six, like that's the goal. And some studies have shown that getting six hours of sleep a night over time is kind of like not sleeping at all in terms of your health risks and your cognitive degradation. uh, Sleep is essential. So part of waking up is good sleep habits. So don't consume caffeine after 4 p.m. Don't eat or drink alcohol right before bed. Uh, Another piece of conditioning advice, don't use your bed for anything but sleep or sex. Uh, Minimize your exposure to screens, glowing blue light screens, especially into the evening. And here's why. Your sleep and wake cycle in the brain appears to be related to sodium and potassium currents. When you have a sodium current in your brain, according to some studies on flies and mice, your neurons are more active and it brings you into a waking state, whereas these potassium currents cause a reduction in neurological activity. And this cycle of currents is influenced by two things. One, exposure to light. And two, when we eat and what size of our meals. So when you get jet lagged, and I have a lot of experience with jet lag after this spring and all the travel that I did, you have a different sunrise and sunset all the time and your body has a hard time catching up. Now there's a second cycle supposedly related to eating and a 16-hour fast before breakfast in your uh, city of destination supposedly can help reset that clock a lot faster. I have not tried it because I'm too much of a wimp to fast for 16 hours, but I've heard and I've seen data to support 
that that's a good practice. Now, waking up is hard because of something called sleep inertia. So even if you're getting over time the right amount of sleep, which makes waking up easier, waking up at the wrong slice of your sleep cycle creates sleep inertia. Every night when you sleep, you have different phases of sleep. This answer will be too long if I go into all of them. It's all over the internet. Uh, But if you wake up in the wrong cycles, you feel very sleepy and very groggy. So here's some tips, assuming you have good sleep hygiene and sleep habits that will make waking up easier. Number one, open your curtains. Let natural light into your room and have that be part of your waking process. Now, that's not possible. You can simulate that with alarm clocks that uh, have lights on them, but sunlight is best. Um, In my home, I have all these big windows and blinds, but no curtains. And so the sun is a huge part of how I wake up in the morning. Uh, You can also make sure you pick alarm sounds that don't stress you out. You did mention that some ways are more or less beneficial. Well, if you hate your alarm sound or it scares you or it startles you, you're going to create uh, stress and a, a negative conditioning with the process of waking up that makes you dread it and it will actually maybe even cause anxiety that makes it difficult for you to sleep because you dread the alarm clock. So I stick to sounds and tones that I find pleasing and pleasant to wake me up. But that's with a big caveat. I try to avoid sleep deprivation to the point where I'll sleep through those alarms. So you're going to let natural light into your room. You're going to get an alarm that doesn't freak you out. And then finally, I don't have a lot of data on these, but the tech industry is all about these uh, smart alarm clocks that using some measurement of your movement as you sleep, either by putting your phone on the mattress or wearing a wrist strap, uh, figures out where you are in your sleep cycle and then wakes you up at the most opportune time in a window when you say you need to wake up. Uh, So if you'd have to get up by 7.15 and it figures out that you're in the best state to wake up at, you know, 6.50, it it sets the alarm then. And you actually wake up feeling more rested than if you slept all the way to 7.15. Whatever you do, hitting the snooze button makes things worse because nine minutes for most people is a perfect amount of sleep to create sleep inertia. So the final part of waking better is not using the snooze button. The thing is, all of these waking up strategies are way, way less important than what time you go to bed and the quality of sleep you get. So there's a reason all those articles focus on the sleep part of waking up. (laughs) Because you can't wake up without a good night's sleep. Hey Mike, this is Hannah. I have a question about pronouns. What do you use to refer to God. It feels really strange to refer to God using a pronoun, um, masculine or feminine, because he's, see, I just did it. (laughs) God isn't a person. He's not a man. He's not a woman. Like how, what do you do? I'm just so used to using he, because that's what it's, um, that's how it's used in scripture and, um, how I grew up, you know, referring to him, but it also feels weird to say it. I don't know. Like, what, what has been your kind of solution for that? What kind of pronoun do you use? Or do you just try to avoid pronouns altogether? And then you just have to be thinking about language all the time when you're talking about God. Thanks. I am so with you. <laughs> this is one of the most difficult things about my faith right now. What pronouns do I use for God? 
let's talk historically about God. You can't get around the fact that the historical depiction of God in a Judeo-Christian context is masculine, although uh, I've understood that pronouns for the Spirit are often feminine in the original languages, but I'm not qualified enough to discern that claim for myself. Um, I don't I don't speak uh, Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew or read them, so I'm trusting the experts there. There's also no denying that more ancient faith traditions appear to have revered God as a goddess or in feminine form, and I've seen what appears to be reasonable anthropology and archaeology that says even within historical Judaism and Christianity, women have had uh, greater and less standing in the faith, and that even potentially our holy texts and church history have been edited to favor a masculine narrative at different points in our history. Regardless, as I understand God, to assign God a gender is pretty ridiculous. When we speak of male and female, we're speaking of chromosomes, biological structures, of which I don't think God has any. And if, if the way society is moving, we're even realizing the degree to which the very buckets of male and female are constructs that don't perfectly or neatly map to reality. And what does that do when we talk about God? There's a couple of ways I approach this, and I'm not satisfied with either. Uh, one way is I don't use pronouns for God. So God draws people to God's self, right? And you'll notice I do that a lot on the show and a lot on the Liturgist podcast. And I think that does a good job of the, the reverence and the mystery of God, of honoring those things. But it's also distant, if I said, uh, if, I, if I didn't use pronouns for Jenny, my wife, and I said, uh, well, you know, Jenny really wants me to come home so that Jenny doesn't have to keep watching Madison and Macy. And, Jen, you know, and I never use a pronoun. There's a, there's a linguistically distancing effect. And part of our faith, a huge component of our faith, are these personal experiences we have with God. And pronouns create intimacy. But we don't have singular, non-gendered pronouns in English, at least not any, that have common enough usage to not be weird when we say them. And this is an issue also uh, for non-gender conforming people. Uh, so do we call God they? So what I try to do is, when appropriate, to acknowledge God's mystery is I don't use pronouns at all. And when I want to talk about God's intimacy, I mix his and her, because even the God of Scripture, the Judeo-Christian God, is depicted as having masculine and feminine qualities. Out of habit, I don't say an even mix of his or her, right? Our language is not nearly as conscious a process as we think it is, uh, as you're trying to create a narrative, different parts of your brain are engaged, and your your left temporal lobe makes a lot of calls on its own. That's the reason we often say things. We're like, how, how could I say that? <laughs> because our consciousness emerges from dozens of 
brain structures with competing priorities that cooperate sometimes and, and other times don't. Uh, they're, every moment of your existence is as ugly a political fight as uh, Trump versus Clinton. <laughs> we're, we're a divided organism. That's, that's why our large network of brains we call one brain uh, can be confusing. So offer yourself some grace when you trip up and say his and also acknowledge the way that saying his um, can perpetuate a system of patriarchy and can uh, marginalize people. So what you do is you do your best to recondition. You catch yourself and you try to find terms that help you describe God in a way that honors God's mystery, makes her feel close, and doesn't restrict other people from knowing or understanding the divine themselves. Our last question came in via email again, and it says, Hello, Mike. I've heard of this new Darwin guy, Jeremy England, and his theory of life being more or less a given, providing some variables as opposed to spontaneous, provided some variables. This makes my imagination run wild, this notion that biological life, even consciousness, could be a law of the universe, that physics would expect it because of some basic properties governing matter, rather than mathematics expecting it because of the dispassionate odds. What is your take on this? A related question. Is there any possible scientific support to the proposition of multiple abiogenesis events on the Earth? If Earth's conditions were so conducive to it happening once, why shouldn't it have happened twice or a dozen times? This is a great question. Here's the first thing I want to say. Poor Jeremy England. And the media calls him the new Darwin, or could he be the new Darwin? Sometimes I feel pressure of this mantle I've been given science Mike which is nothing compared to being called the new Darwin. (laughs) So I'm imagining that uh, Mr. England did not hoist that label upon himself. Uh, And also, of course, really important, uh, his theory of abiogenesis doesn't really have anything to do with evolution via natural selection. Let's talk about abiogenesis. That's the idea that life emerged on the earth the science of that. And it's hard to study. You know why? Because we think life started as proteins and amino acids and other soft compounds that don't fossilize particularly well. And so when compared to other life studies, we don't have a lot of forensic uh, material to deal with when it comes to a biogenesis. It took a long time before animals had enough structures uh, or life, I didn't, shouldn't even say animals, since life had enough structures to leave traces of itself other than chemical traces. That makes a biogenesis really hard to study. And what Jeremy England has done is provided a mathematically feasible framework for how life emerges. And in fact, his model predicts that life is not just possible, but plausible, even likely, given the right conditions, namely organic compounds, with ongoing radiation exposure injecting energy into a system while suspended in a heat bath of some kind. We imagine in those kind of conditions, life becomes likely. Now, could it have happened multiple times on the Earth? Absolutely. Could it have happened multiple times in our solar system? Absolutely. That's why we like sending probes to other planets so much. 
we're looking for possible signs of this process occurring elsewhere in the solar system and maybe some forensic data that we don't have on the Earth. Because what would happen today if organic compounds caused a biogenesis? Some little bacteria would just come by and eat it. <laughs> this, this planet is already covered in life that has been honed by natural selection to explore every exploitable niche to find every bit of energy available for life on this planet. It doesn't mean conditions are, are wrong for biogenesis to occur. It means that uh, there's already too much life here for some independent strain of a biogenesis to occur. It's a fascinating, fascinating question. Now, in terms of what this means for faith and what it means for God, um, this is exactly what I talk about when I talk about this mysterious God, a creator who is always creating. The laws of physics are just, it's so obvious to us now how stars happen in galaxies and planets. And the fact that life could also be written into the fabric, the basic mechanics of how the universe unfolds is beautiful and fascinating. <laughs> it deepens my faith in God, not as some being that occasionally intervenes, not this theistic God we're also hung up on, but instead a ground of being and a source of all that is always creating, that never stops intervening. It's not that we try to go back to the divine. It's that we discover the divine, that God is already with us all the time. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the program, uh, if you listen to the Liturgist podcast, if you're one of the spiritually homeless and frustrated that make up that community, we're putting on two very affordable conferences. They're going to be smaller, intimate events in Denver and Chicago. It's called the Liturgist Gathering, and we'd love for you to come and hang out with us. Uh, we're going to meet everybody there, have time to spend with you. Unlike if you saw us on tour or something like that, where we're rushing from city to city, this is where we settle in for a couple of days and get to know everybody. And the most amazing thing to me, having done these events before, is by the time the event is over, you all tend to forget we're even there because you've met each other. People who listen to the liturgist tend to be people uh, who feel like they're the only one or they feel alone. And what you'll find at the liturgist gathering is that you belong, that you are part of something and there are other people like you. You can get more information about that by going to theliturgist.com. And if you can't spell liturgist, no big deal. A lot of people can't. It's L I T U R. G-I-S-T-S, so theliturgists.com. You can find all about Belong. I've got some more events coming up this summer. Um, I'll be at the Wild Goose Festival, so I'd love to see you there. I've actually got a discount code, and that discount code is GooseCast2016. So if you're buying tickets to the Wild Goose Festival, if you use the discount code GooseCast2016, you'll get 20% off your ticket for Wild Goose, which is really cool uh, that they're doing that for people who listen to the podcast that are going to be involved. So I'm going to be there doing an Ask Science Mike live, and I think we're going to have a live Liturgist podcast as well. So I'd love to see you at Wild Goose. I'm also coming to Saratoga Federated Church uh, for a village forum 
on science and faith. You can learn all about the places I'm going to be, uh, when and where, and if I'm coming near you by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking on the Events tab. Uh, Speaking of AskScienceMike.com, that's where you can go to get uh, resources for every question on this episode and most episodes in the history of the program. Uh, And uh, that's also where you can learn about supporting the show on Patreon. I have been blown away with how many people are participating with Patreon now. I don't don't want to turn it into another weepy love fest like last week, but just know I appreciate you if you'd like to be a part of that. Just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Patreon button. Uh, if money's tight, I get it. You can rate the show on iTunes, and that's a huge help, too. Appreciate everyone who's done that. There's a lot of funny ones. I really like the funny ones. Some of them are profound and make me cry, too. So thanks for all of you that are rating the show. Uh, I want to thank Andrew Galucky. You, you know, he's killing it. He's absolutely killing it with these... Uh, questions every week. The show just gets better with his involvement. Greg Nordine has been playing around with different EQ settings, getting the show to sound even better. I noticed. I think it's amazing. I hope you've noticed too. And Jeb Botterford, of course, wrote our famous theme song that people now sing to me in airports. It's an honor to spend this time with you, and I will see you next week. Bye.